Your Honor, the portion of the tape obliterated is the portion related to Watergate. Nothing prior to the Watergate discussion or subsequently was erased from the tape. Welcome back to Rebel Women Podcast, the podcast about ordinary women who've done the extraordinary. I'm your host, Anna Heerman. Uh, for today's episode, we're going to be talking about Jill Weinbanks. Uh, this is a woman that is still alive. She uh, has shown up on appearances of MSNBC and is a, currently a political correspondent for MSNBC. Um, I was really excited to find her memoir, uh, the Watergate Girl, and to be able to talk about this topic. Um, I did watch some movies about what went on with, like, the Nixon-Watergate scandal. Um, I didn't actually know that much about it because uh, I didn't actually, you know, grow up at that time. Um, but it was, like, very interesting to learn about the Watergate scandal, about what went on. Uh, it was very interesting to read uh, Jill's uh, view of like what was going on at the time. Um, she covers the topic very well in her book, and there's a lot of like explanation for what's going on. So I really do recommend if you are interested in reading about her story to check out her memoir. Um, I hope that you guys like this episode. I kind of wanted to structure it a little bit differently just so you had all the information that you would need. Um, so let me know what you guys think. Uh, but before we get into the episode, let's start with our women in business spotlight. Hi, I'm Susan Logston. This is Amanda Hellman, and we are Golden Gems. Golden Gems is a lifestyle brand. Um, we believe that there's a baddie inside of everyone, and we just want to inspire you to live unapologetically, to take up space, to live life on your own terms. And we do that with a number of products, um, small reminders um, to get you through the day, large, more overt, cheeky reminders that really remind everybody that you are here and you're killing it and you can do it. We are sisters and we grew up on Golden Gym Road in Apopka, Florida. Our parents still live there today. Uh, so the name of our store is just an homage to home. Um, we started the business in 2016 just as side hustles. We were on Etsy. We were doing craft fairs around St. Louis. And then in 2018, we got our first storefront on Cherokee Street. Um, we quickly outgrew that and moved into a much larger space on Locust. Um, we also have a second location at City Foundry, and we're really excited because we are opening up a third location at West County Mall um, in April. So um, you can find us at all three of those locations, or you can follow us on Instagram at shopgoldengems. You can also find us online at shopgoldengems.com. Okay, guys. For you to really understand what we're going to be talking about in this episode, I kind of need to give you an overview of the Watergate scandal. So I'm going to tell you about uh, the beginning of the Watergate scandal. 
It's July 17, 1972, a balmy night in Washington, D.C. At the Watergate Building and Hotel, it's a pretty quiet night. Uh, Nothing seems to be going on. The security guard at the Watergate is walking uh, down in the basement area, and he notices that one of the doors seems to have some masking tape over like the lock mechanism, so somebody could come in or out of the uh, Watergate building. So he immediately calls the police, and he's like, hey, guys, like something really weird is going on. Like It seems like maybe somebody's broken into the building, but I'm not really sure. So these cops come. They are coming from some kind of theme party. They're dressed up like civilians. And they enter the Watergate building, and they start looking at every floor. And while this is happening, there are men who are ex-CIA operatives that worked during like the Bay of Pigs Cuba era who are in the Democratic National Convention offices. There's five of them. And uh, they are these people that have basically been hired to uh, bug the DNC offices. So the uh, bugs that they had put in, they actually had put in a week earlier and they were coming back because one of the bugs was not working. So they were coming back to fix the bug. And while they were doing this, they had somebody at another building that's across from the water gate, basically looking in and watching what they're doing and had them on walkie talkie. So when the police pull up and they appear to be dressed as basically civilians, the guy at the other building basically says like, Hey, like there's some guys coming into the building, but like, just turn your walkie talkie like on low. So like they don't raise suspicion. So the burglars at that point, turn the walkie talkies off. They're in the DNC. They are not hearing anything from the guy that's across the street because the walkie talkies off. And the police officers are like searching every single floor. And finally, like they basically burst in and then they find these burglars that are like in like business suits, but with like rubber gloves on. And, and they are like, whoa, like, you guys are not supposed to be here. Like, what you're doing is illegal. And they arrest the guys. So what ends up happening is uh, the there are some reporters at the Washington Post, uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. And they get word of like some interesting shenanigans going down at the Watergate Hotel. So they start digging to see, like, is there a story here? And it turns out that there is a pretty significant story. The story being that the president at the time, Richard Nixon, had basically hired these XCA operatives to bug not only the Watergate building, but several other buildings where his quote-unquote enemies were. And this becomes what is known as the Watergate scandal. Roughly 30 years before the Watergate scandal, Jill Susan Wine is born to Bert and Sylvia Wine. She eventually has a younger sister named Robin and a younger brother named Stevie. Jill grows up in Chicago, Illinois, near Buena Park. Her grandfather, Max, lives with her family, and her aunts and uncles live within walking distance of her and her family. Jill attends Graeme Stewart Elementary and also attends synagogue on the high holidays. They, her whole family holds cedars for Passover and has huge celebrations for Hanukkah. But other than that, they're not really um, a practicing, observing Jewish family. But they do like the big holidays, sort of like I would say like how 
I celebrate Christmas and Easter, but I don't really do much more than, uh, you know, Christmas dinner or Easter dinner. Um, Jill, as a young person, tries her hand at piano and her feet at ballet, but she doesn't really find that these two things bring her a lot of like passion. And so she ultimately decides that she's not going to go into either piano or ballet and instead starts looking into journalism. So as a young person um, at school in her elementary, middle, and high school, she does look into journalism clubs there and uh, she even becomes class president whenever she's in middle school. Um, So she's really kind of like starts setting her eyes on uh, matters that have to do with like uncovering the wrongs of the world, but also has like an interest in politics and kind of what that looks like. Um, She eventually attends Niles Township High School after her family moves to Skokie, Illinois. And whenever she decides to enter college, she's accepted into the University Urbana-Champaign. And she begins working on a bachelor's in journalism. She joins the IOTA Alpha Pi sorority and even becomes engaged to a study abroad student, but the engagement doesn't last that long because uh, the man that she becomes engaged to ends up being a little bit like untruthful to her about what's going on in his life. After receiving her bachelor's, Jill begins wondering what her next steps will be and thinks that maybe a law degree would be helpful for her career in journalism because she's interested in covering political stories. She is accepted into Columbia Law School and receives her Juris Doctor, a degree that allows her to practice law in 1968. It's also this time that she meets and marries her first husband, Ian Volner, and begins working as a trial lawyer working for the United States Department of Justice. And she becomes one of the first female lawyers to cover the organized crime division. On May 25th, 1973, 312 days after the men were caught at the Watergate Hotel, And months after articles from Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein had made headlines, Jill has a meeting with a man named Archibald Cox. He is the special prosecutor for the investigation into the Watergate scandal. For the prosecutor's office looking into the Watergate scandal, they have five arms that are looking into the scandal itself, but the part of the prosecutorial team that Jill ends up working on is the section that's looking into the cover-up of Watergate and to find out if there was obstruction of justice, which, spoiler alert, there was. (laughs) Jill works closely with Richard Benveniste, James Neal, George Frampton, Gerald Goldman, Lawrence Iason, as well as Phil Lacavara, Carl Feldbaum, and Henry Ruth. Now, up to this point in time, Uh, After the arrest of the men and kind of like the uncovering of the background of the men in question, um, there have already been a couple statements from the White House. One of the White House's statements was just that it was a third-rate burglary. Um, But considering that four of the five men that had been arrested were previously employed by the CIA, uh, it seemed to be that at least according to Woodward and Bernstein, there was more than met the eye initially from this arrest that was made. At the same time, suspicions are still rising even higher because a uh, another man is arrested. His name is James W. McCord Jr., and he is an ex-CIA operative. McCord is an electronics expert, and he also has a contract with the Committee to Re-elect the President, also known as CREEP. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt, these are two more White House 
creep men uh, begins tightening the noose of suspicion that something is going on with the White House and what's gone on with the Watergate Hotel. Um, this is all coming from like the journalistic investigation that Woodward and Bernstein have been undergoing at this point. Um, and this is all in 1972. So the election for uh, Nixon occurs uh, in November of 1972, and he wins his second term in a landslide, taking 49 out of 50 states. And it's just four short months later, whenever Jill starts on the prosecutorial team looking into the Watergate scandal and seeing if there has been uh, anything going on with the White House into uh, what has occurred at the hotel. Ten days after Nixon's inauguration, McCord and Lydia are both convicted of conspiracy and wiretapping charges, and McCord later goes on record saying that he, along with the other men, were bought off. Their, their silence is going to be in exchange for money for their families. This is later proven to have some truth to it when Dorothy Hunt, the wife of Nixon's man Howard Hunt, is discovered to have $10,000 cash on her after her body is recovered after a plane crash. It's suggested that this money was supposed to go to one of the families of the incarcerated men. As the evidence mounts, the Senate then creates the Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, but this name quickly morphs into the Senate Watergate Committee. On Jill's first day on the prosecutorial team, Jill meets White House and creep official Jeb Stuart Magruder. In a plan to get a plea deal, Magruder tells Jill that he had been present on January 27, 1972, when Gordon Liddy presented the plan to bug the Democratic National Convention offices. And he also says that John M. Mitchell and John W. Dean were also present at this meeting. John M. Mitchell and John W. Dean are both men that work with Nixon. Mitchell had not only run Nixon's 1968 election campaign, but he also made himself the head of creep full-time after the election, and Dean serves as the White House counsel from July 1970 until April 1973. Liddy at the time presented his, quote, gemstone plan with different aspects of the plan that included more and more ludicrous ideas that would supposedly help get Nixon reelected. These include wild plans like kidnapping anti-Vietnam protesters and holding them hostage in Mexico until after the election. It also includes things like luring DNC delegates onto a yacht full of strippers and prostitutes while the convention met in Miami. And the plan was to take obscene photos for the purposes of blackmail. Mitchell ultimately vetoes the gemstone plan, but not because of the mounting levels of Monty Python and level antics, but because the price tag is $1 million, and that just seems to be too much for Mitchell to swallow. Mitchell instead okays the $250,000 plan Liddy puts forward to bug the DNC offices and photograph and blackmail the DNC delegates when they can. The gemstone file is instructed by Mitchell to be destroyed after the men are caught at the Watergate. Magruder seems to be sitting pretty and looks like he'll get away with his part in the Watergate scandal until James McCord decides to come forward. Looking at four years in prison and seeing Magruder get away from prosecution, McCord decides he's going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Magruder's real involvement in the cover-up along with Mitchell and Liddy's involvement. Everything that has been told to Jill and her team, though, is for the most part he said he said— that is until Alexander Butterfield drops the incredible bomb that Nixon has been recording 
everything that goes on in the White House. With the realization that there are tapes of phone calls and conversations with Nixon and his henchmen, the team carefully reviews the timestamps they have for when the president would have been meeting with the men and consenting to the plan to bug the DNC. Using journals and diaries from the men involved in checking visitor logs, the team puts forward a formal request for nine tapes that they believe will illuminate what has been undertaken. They ask that the White House nicely fork the tapes over, but of course, Nixon does not comply. And on June 23, 1974, Jill and her team submit a subpoena for the tapes. Nixon refuses to answer the subpoena even after Judge Sirica, who is overseeing the Watergate case, and another different judge both order Nixon to hand them over. After the subpoena and secondary order, Nixon's VP at the time, Spiro Agnew, resigns due to other legal things that he has partaken in. Jill and her team continue to diligently work on the case, trying to see how far they can push witnesses like John Dean. At the same time, Nixon is trying his best to get out of handing over the tapes and suggests an absurd compromise, saying that he will hand over the tapes to a senator by the name of John Stennis. Stennis is really old, practically deaf, and had recently been the victim of a mugging that left him healing from a gunshot wound. Jill and her team absolutely refuse this compromise, and later that same week, a Time Magazine article comes out with a picture captioning Stennis with his hand cupped round his ear to say, technical assistant needed. Jill and her team know that the American people will never accept this proposal either. On October 20th, Nixon orders the firing of Archibald Cox, and the office of the special prosecutor is raided by the FBI. This becomes known colloquially as the Saturday Night Massacre. During this time, the entire team was incredibly suspicious that something terrible would happen and had been storing documents within their home. Jill had a huge box of paperwork in her attic and many important files. And so while the firing of Cox and the raiding of their offices was a setback, the Nixon administration had not been able to steal everything. This action clearly upsets the American people with the New York Times writing that Nixon was a dictator who considers himself sole judge of the land and who uses the power of his office to purge independence from the executive branch and to supersede the mandate of the courts by arbitrary exercise of his will. At this time, there are also protests on college campuses, and this in re- And this reinvigorates Jill, who has done some protesting herself when she was in college. While it's not clear if the dip in the president's ratings, the overall backlash from the media or the American people or the ongoing protests push Nixon to finally give in, but he does finally say through his lawyers that he will hand over the tapes. When Jill and Rick initially go to question the audio technician that uh, had the had brought the tapes over, um, they ask him questions like, why would the tapes be missing? Clearly, the way that the system is set up is it's set up in a way where once one tape gets uh, full of audio, the next tape switch over. Like, what's going on with the system that um, these tapes don't exist? And according to the audio technician, he says there's really no reason for these audio tapes to be missing. The system was working correctly. It should have put new tapes in the system that would have been used during those days when 
they had requested those tape times. Uh, but uh, before Jill and Rick have time to get the audio technician's deposition, uh, somebody's already gotten to him and possibly uh, threatened him or given him money to basically tell him to say, like, there's a good reason for these tapes to be missing. But it comes out later that they know for a fact that at least one of the tapes does exist because they find out that uh, Nixon's personal secretary, Rosemary Woods, had at one point been transcribing one of the missing tapes herself while at Camp David. Jill initially questions Rosemary and asks what happened with the tape. And Rosemary Woods tells her uh, she had been working on transcribing the tape day and night while she was out at Camp David with Nixon. Uh, but the audio transcription was really difficult to do because of the quality of the audio tapes themselves. It's also at this time that a new special prosecutor is appointed, Leon Jaworski. And uh, while his style is different than Archibald Cox's style for how they're going to attack this Watergate scandal, the cover-up and investigation, um, it seems to be that Jill seems to have like a pretty good relationship with Leon. Um, Leon doesn't take that much of a liking to her partner, Rick, but uh, for Jill, like it seems to be that uh, Leon really appreciates her input and uh, thinks that she knows how to practice law. But he does a lot of the time refer to her as the lady lawyer, which does rub Jill the wrong way. It's during this time that the second shoe would drop with the nine Nixon tapes when the missing tapes have been suddenly found. But one of the tapes... Uh, has 18 and a half minutes missing from the recording. All that they can hear on the recording is just 18 and a half minutes of humming. The blame is laid at the feet of Rosemary Woods, who had already previously said that she had been working to transcribe the tape that up until that point had been said was missing. Now, Rosemary's claim was that the uh, tape was really difficult to listen to. She had to work on it day and night. It was just, it was basically really difficult for her to transcribe the audio for the tape. Um, so what ends up happening is that uh, Jill wanted to interview Rosemary Woods and get her testimony uh, basically as part of the public record. Uh, but Jill wasn't sure what Rose's testimony would be. If Rose had been the one to erase the tapes, then she would have to either use her Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate herself or risk perjuring herself if she lied. If she had erased the 18 and a half minutes from the tape, who directed her to do so? If she was responsible but did so without direction, why did she erase the 18 and a half minutes? And lastly, if she did erase it but it was by accident, how did the accident occur? Rose begins her story by first saying she has nothing to do with the tape, but of course, her previous testimony proved that to be false since she had already said she had been working to transcribe the tape. She then pivots and says, actually, she had been asked to transcribe the tape that held over six hours of conversation, with specific attention being paid to the conversation in question that the prosecutorial team thought contained information on Watergate based on previous notes that had been given to them by John Dean. So basically, at this point, Rosemary's testimony is that Nixon said, hey, this is the time frame that the prosecutorial team is interested in 
would you take this tape, go to that time frame, and transcribe it so I can see what was said in that conversation? Which Rosemary agrees to do. Rosemary explains that the tapes are of such poor quality that she consistently has to rewind the tape to catch every word as she transcribes, with one paragraph taking her hours and hours to do. She also brings up that her headset is too large for her and that she has to constantly adjust it. According to Rose's recollection, after 29 hours of working on the June 20th tape, she'd only been able to write up an hour's worth of conversation. Rose complains about the poor equipment she uses to replay the tape, and she is given a new system shortly after her return from Camp David. According to Rose, while using this new system and writing up her transcription, her phone rang and she reached to answer it. It's also according to her that that's what must have been going on when the tape had been taped over. Jill senses that there is more to the story, though, and asks Rosemary Wood to show her, Judge Sirica, and the jury how exactly the scenario happened. Rose begins to reenact exactly how she might have accidentally erased the tape with a little setup in the courtroom. Sitting in front of her on the recording device, she dons the over-large headphones and demonstrated how she used her Urher 5000 to override the tape. But in her demonstration of even removing her headphones, Rose's foot lifts from the pedal. Jill and the rest of the court notices, and Jill pounces on this, asking Rose to show the court what the day in question must have looked like when Rose says she must have accidentally erased the tape when she answered the phone call. Reaching back to where her phone was generally positioned in the office, it's plain to see that there is no way Rose could have maintained the position for 18 and a half minutes. Jill proceeds to continue questioning Rose. What did you tell the president you had done? That I made a mistake. What was your mistake, Miss Woods? Having the record button down? What would the effect be of having the record button down? There would be no effect if I also didn't have my foot on the pedal. You then realized immediately that you might have erased the tape. I realized that there was a gap in the tape. And that you might have caused it. I might have, but I wasn't sure then, and I'm not sure now. It seemed to Jill that in questioning Rose that the reality of the situation of what was happening dawned on her. The Nixon administration and her beloved boss was throwing her under the bus. They wanted Rose to take all the blame. Jill asked the court reporter to repeat Rose's words back to her from her previous testimony and her retort that she had used her head and that it was the only one she had to use. Rose is still indignant at this point in the questioning, though, and insists that within the confines of her actual office, she could prove how easily the tape could have been erased. So the court heads to Rosemary Wood's office, and there, in front of court reporters, White House reporters, and the court itself, demonstrates what will become the Rosemary stretch. Her body extended in a way that couldn't be held for an extended period of time, especially not for the 18 and a half minutes that was missing. This picture is splashed all over the media at this point. And in the papers, they uh, the reporters make Rosemary Woods out to be uh, some sort of lackey to the Nixon administration. But ultimately... The way Jill feels about it is that she could recognize that Rosemary Woods was just being loyal to her boss. This demonstration and ultimately the ridicule that Rosemary suffers at, after the fact was something that Jill not only felt responsible for, but reflected on as something she and all women had a tendency to suffer from. Jill herself had been dismissed and belittled in her pr profession from multiple sources, including her boss, Leon, who would call her a lady lawyer. 
Now, I'd like to give you guys a reminder of the times, though. I mean, it wasn't until 1965 that married women could get their own birth control, and it wasn't until 1972 that unmarried women could get birth control. Uh, the right to education without sex discrimination didn't pass until 1972, and the right to have a bank account if you're a woman or to have a credit card or debit card didn't pass until 1974. What women could or could not do was pretty limited at this point. I mean, the fact that Jill was working as a lawyer and was able to do as much as she was doing at this time in 1974 is just incredibly impressive. And if you think about what women believed that they could do based on the laws, it's amazing that she was working on this team. And it really, you know, doesn't surprise me, and I don't think it should surprise anybody, that she was consistently fighting against microaggressions all the time in her career. She writes in her book about when she was a trial lawyer in Alaska and was basically forced to mostly freeze in the courtroom because the court garb that was required of women was to wear skirts and hose. But of course, in Alaska, it's really, really cold. And some other things that she would have to deal with would be uh, the opposing lawyers reaching over to take materials from her and saying loudly enough, like things like, oh, your perfume smells so good. She even had at one point a lawyer that would not even address her as a woman. Uh, so you really like get the sense of like how much she had to deal with on a daily basis as a lawyer in 1974 working as a woman. Even though Nixon and his henchmen were ultimately responsible for the actions of Watergate, Rosemary Woods is the one that suffers the most ridicule, ridicule and contempt. While most of the men of Nixon's inner circle had sympathetic articles written about them, with many bemoaning the fact that the, quote, young men had had their futures taken away because of Nixon's influence, Rosemary Woods was painted in a way that made her seem stupid and sometimes even villainous, when in reality, she was probably one of the most loyal of all of Nixon's men. Jill even notes that in another time, Rosemary Woods would have been Nixon's chief of staff, a position that was filled by Halderman, who was just a toxic bird in Nixon's ear. Jill herself was constantly on the receiving end of sexist comments herself, with even Judge Sirica saying at one point in the questioning of Rosemary Woods that he wasn't interested in, quote, two ladies fighting. In the paper, after Jill's questioning of Rose, the papers made the questioning out to be like a cat fight rather than two women in high positions doing their jobs. And newspapers even belittled Jill as simply Rick's protege, even though they were of the same age and of the same level in their career. It's interesting reading some of Jill's book where she says that she doesn't, uh, in her career, recall having to deal with that much sexism, but uh, she does write a lot about the fact that newspapers would always call her the miniskirted lawyer, or they would always use the picture of her uh, in an like, outfit that they had deemed was, uh, you know, incredibly feminine or, you know, incredibly young woman. Um, and also, like, she notes how there would be some magazine articles where they would talk about her appearance, where they would never, of course, talk about any of the men appearances of the prosecutorial team or even the appearances of the uh, men that were on the defense side. Jill definitely recognizes all of the microaggressions that are going into uh, how the media 
paints Rosemary Woods, and she ultimately feels apologetic about that. And also that there is definitely a level of unfairness in how the uh, young men are talked about in comparison to any woman that had to deal with the Nixon scandal. Later in life, Jill would try to make amends with Rosemary Wood's family, but her attempts would be turned down. Since the tapes had clearly been tampered with, and it was also clear the White House seemed intent on framing Rosemary Woods for making the mistake, the team decided to see if there was any way to conclusively say who might have been the culprit. The paper trail of the tapes that had been subpoenaed after offered little clues, as the chain of custody was shaky at best. At the same time, newspapers were blasting the Nixon administration as corrupt, helmed by a paranoid dictator. Nixon still gets to choose his new VP, though, after the resignation of his original VP, Spiro Agnew, and chooses Gerald Ford, the House Minority Leader who hailed from Michigan on December 6, 1973. But there was still much to uncover in the Watergate scandal at this point. It was also at this time that they were able to finally access some of the other tapes that they had asked for. In early December of 1973, Jill and the rest of her team gathered to listen, picking up a particular tape from March 21st, 1973. This is the tape that John Dean had noted in his testimony was of particularly damaging evidence against the president. It's on this tape, Dean can be heard saying to Nixon that the Watergate cover-up had caused a cancer on the presidency, and to be fair, he wasn't wrong, and that their efforts to keep the burglars quiet would cost Nixon $1 million over the next two years. Nixon replies, we could get that, and maybe we could get it in cash. With this damning evidence, the team finally had everything they needed to prove that Nixon had participated in the obstruction of justice, which is a federal crime. Jill and her team begin to craft the necessary paperwork that would serve as a roadmap for Congress to impeach Nixon, and as more and more information was gathered, it seemed impossible that the vote to remove Nixon from office would fail. Their carefully crafted roadmap was given to the jury that had been serving on the Watergate case on March 1st, 1974, and they all voted unanimously that there was more than enough evidence for an indictment of the seven men that had participated in the conspiracy to cover up the Watergate scandal. To Joe and the rest of the team's chagrin, Leon Jaworski, who had taken over as the head of the prosecutorial team, had refused to move forward with indicting Nixon because he was a sitting president. Jill's life at this time begins to take change in small but drastic ways. Her high school sweetheart had reached out to her, and having been stuck for most of her adult life in a terribly emotionally and mentally abusive marriage, this rekindled friendship was a breath of fresh air. Before the trial had even begun, Jill had sought comfort outside of her marriage, and with the trial's conclusion looking like it was coming to an end, she knew what she had to do was what was best for her. The idea of seeking counseling for her marriage began to take seed, and after an issue of The Incredible Hulk created a Marvel version of Jill and Jack as tough-cracking lawyers fighting a corrupt government, Jill began to think that maybe she ought to be her own hero. Throughout the summer, it became apparent that the Senate would move to impeach Nixon, and when given the chance, his former allies in the House and Senate broke ranks from him, and many were quoted in the paper saying their position was to oust the criminal president, so before they could take action on August 9, 1974, Nixon formally resigned from the presidency, and Gerald Ford takes his place. Now, if you know anything about American history, you know that Gerald Ford also immediately pardoned Nixon. 
Um, so Nixon never saw trial, never had charges brought against him. He was free to go once he left the presidency. The Watergate 7, eventually the Watergate 5 due to two of the men taking plea deals, wrap up with the resignation of Nixon. Jill and her team are basically free to go their separate ways. It's at this point that Jill takes a job working under President Jimmy Carter in 1977 and becomes the general counsel for the U.S. Army. On her list of items that needed changing, Jill insisted on changing uniforms and equipment to better suit a woman's body. These changes would make women in the armed forces safer as more women were allowed into different arms of the army. She would make a point of bringing to notice how well, arm, how well women teams working together in different ways were far more efficient than large groups of army men. She worked also to abolish the Women's Army Corps, the only arm that, would, that women could apply for in favor of opening all positions to women. Jill also traveled the world at this point, too, under the Carter administration, and Jill took this opportunity to see if she could fix her failed marriage, but instead chooses happiness and leaves Ian Volner. She eventually reconnects with Michael Banks, her high school sweetheart, and marries him on July 12, 1980, after moving to Chicago to live with him, and takes a job at the Chicago law firm Jenner & Block. It's here that she experiences a fair amount of sexism at this firm, with women given harsh labels and given less cases to work. She eventually moves positions to become the state of Illinois' first solicitor general and was then promoted to become the state's first female deputy attorney general. Jill goes on to become the executive director of the American Bar Association, becoming the first woman to hold the position, and grows the outreach of the ABA to include governmental lawyers. Jill and her husband briefly relocate to Miami, Florida, but decided not to stay, and Jill takes up a position at Motorola, traveling all over the world. Later, she would become VP of Maytag for a time and then switch positions to become the CEO of Winnipeg Workplaces, a nonprofit. She'll then also go on to become the Chief Officer of Career and Technical Education at the Chicago Public Schools and is able to help create the DeVry University Advantage Academy High School. She works with the Chicago Architecture Foundation and even publishes a textbook. Jill had decided to retire, but now she works as a legal analyst for MSNBC, and she occasionally does pop up on the TV sometimes. When I first started reading her book, I wondered what part of her book I would find particularly inspiring, and uh, I honestly was very inspired really at the end of her book when she talks about uh, all of the positions that she was able to take, uh, all the jobs she was able to work, all the places she was able to uh, go to and learn about. Um, I really thought that her story about when she started working for Jimmy Carter, that uh, she had basically gone to go parachuting and she was wearing the same uh outfits that the women in the army would wear when they would be parachuting. And she quickly realized after her first jump and her second jump that the gear was just simply not made for women. She ended up getting uh, hurt like from the harness that was holding her. She also ended up getting a cut on her nose because the helmet was too big for her head and it slipped down and like cut her on the face. So like one of the big things that she did under uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency, uh, working uh, as the general counsel for the army, is that she basically said, hey, what we need to do is we need to make clothes that are for women because ultimately women's bodies are not 
the bodies of just small men, they are shaped differently, our torsos are different, our uh, bony anatomy is slightly different. Uh, so she was able to do stuff that like, I think, honestly affected a ton of people in a very positive way. And I found that very inspiring. And I really like appreciated just like, honestly, like the last chapter of her book, which was just kind of the wrap up of her life. Um, so I don't know, I just like, I never know what I'm going to get when I uh, start reading about these women. I don't know what part is going to hit me the most. But I just found like, the fact that she had worked in so many places and was willing to like change her career so often that so she could just continue doing the good things that she wanted to do. I found like that very inspiring. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I recommend that you pick up her book, The Watergate Girl uh, by Jill Winebanks. It's, it's a really good read. I listened to it on audio and I also read the actual book as part of like research for this. I also um, looked at the articles that were posted by uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward uh, from the Washington Post. I uh, didn't get a chance to read the book uh, by Woodward that was All the President's Men, but I was able to watch the movie that featured Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Uh, I will say if you guys get the chance to watch the movie that there are a couple scenes where Robert Redford just looks like uh, Brad Pitt. It's very, it's very strange. There's like a scene in the, uh, where he's in the car parking lot speaking to the uh, anonymous source Deep Throat and he like looks just like Brad Pitt. It's very strange. So I do recommend you guys go and check that out. Um, as for where we are going, um, next episode, episode four, I'm so stoked to bring you guys this episode because we are going to go on a little adventure to ancient Egypt. Um, I was like obsessed with ancient Egypt when I was a child. I like my dad worked at the uh, St. Louis Art Museum and I was able to go to work with him when I was a little kid and I would go and hang out in the Egyptian room that we have there with like the mummies and the jars that hold all the organs. And I think at some point I had like somehow uh, taught myself what some of the hieroglyph like sounds were so I would like write in hieroglyphs like my name based on like what that hieroglyph sound made which is not that I learned how to translate Egyptian I did not but uh, I just basically was like oh that's how you spell Anna is with this hieroglyph this hieroglyph and this hieroglyph um, I was obsessed as a child so I am so stoked to bring you this next episode uh, she is a ruler of ancient Egypt. She was one of the most prosperous rulers of any like ancient civilization time. Um, not to give you guys too many clues, uh, but I'm hoping that you maybe have never heard of her, even though uh, she is probably one of like the most amazing rulers that we could look back on as like having a successful kingdom that she ruled. 
Um, if you guys would like to connect in any way, uh, you can check out my Instagram, Rebel Women Podcast, or my TikTok. I'm also on Twitter at rebelwomen underscore pod. Uh, I do have the website, rebelwomenpodcast.com. Um, there you can find links to all of my sources, my thoughts that I had while producing the episode. Um, I have some stuff in there uh, just about uh, my thoughts on making a podcast in general. So if you want to go there and check that out, um, there is a place where you can subscribe to the website and it'll tell you anytime I put up posts. Um, I really have put a lot of work into it and really love it. Uh, so if you guys want to find me there and like get to know me a little bit more, uh, definitely head over to rebelwomanpodcast.com. And don't forget guys, if you think about it, go ahead and rate and review the pod on whatever service you are listening to the podcast on. You can rate and review on Spotify. You can rate and review on Apple pods. You can rate and review on good pods. Oh, and I have stickers, which I'm very excited about. So if you guys are interested in me mailing you a sticker, um, I would love to figure out how to do that for you guys. So um, just send me an email or DM me on Instagram or Twitter or on TikTok and I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can sell them for like 75 cents or a dollar. I don't know, but I just, uh, I really love the stickers and I would love to see them out in the world. I think it would just be so cool. Um, I'd like to say a special thank you to Hannah Hull, who did the podcast cover artwork, which is so beautiful. And to D-Dare Bionic, who did the music for my episodes. Um, Thank you guys, and I will talk to you in two weeks.